I'm going to be reading in Deuteronomy today the beginning and the end of our passage. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness and the Arabah opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizabeth. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Hezbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth, and in Idrei. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain the law, saying... And now at the end of chapter 3, verse 27. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over the Jordan. But, cha but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. This is the word of the Lord. Well, at Sojourn, we are convinced and convicted that the scripture, the word of God, is authoritative for us, and we want it to inform and instruct all that we do, and we make it our practice to switch as often as we can, uh, as is prudent for us and for you to switch from the Old Testament back to the New Testament back and forth. So we've just finished some New Testament books. Now we've gone back to the Old Testament to Deuteronomy so that we might receive from the whole counsel of God's word. And it's this is the time when uh, you have a few brave souls that are still willing to read the scripture in front of you. Uh, of Deuteronomy, one author says that the psalmist praised it, the prophets appealed to it, Faithful kings ruled by it, and righteous citizens lived by it. And the it they're talking about is Deuteronomy. It, it is the, the climax of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the, the climax, the, the key to all Old Testament theology. It is one of the top four most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament, now, that might be cheating somewhat because it's quoted often in the Gospels, and where there's one Gospel, it's kind of quoted in, in multiple, but I, God put four Gospels in, so it still counts. And because Jesus quoted it so often, we could, I think, make a pretty good case that Deuteronomy was Jesus' favorite book. But church, I want us to know this morning that this is a book for us too. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, For the things that were written in former times... They were written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, I just want to ask you quickly, like, do you, do you have hope this morning? Are you full of hope? One of the means that God uses to give us hope are the scriptures, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. And so... I want to turn us there, and, and because we, as we journey through books together as a church, it's such a, a big event for us as we do this together and work through books together, I want us, as we do, to, to just, if you're willing, if you're able to, 
bow in prayer with me as we think about this book together. Father, it is an immeasurable mercy that we have your word in front of us. May we receive it as such. I pray that you would use it this morning to instruct us, to correct us, to teach us, to reprove us, to give us hope. Father, would you please shape us and mold us by your word and reveal your greatness and glory as we read it, think through it, and hear it this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. Well, at times, one of the best things to do in order to move forward is to first look backward. You might do this if you've played sports. Sometimes you have to review film. You watch game film from the previous week or from years or weeks before or at a job. You do performance reviews where you, you look back and you think about your, your previous performance and, and what it was good about it, what was bad. Or, or for students, it might be helpful to move forward to, to look back at tests or quizzes that you've had so that you can see, evaluate where am I in relation to where I need to be and, and how can I move forward best. And, and this is one of the best ways to move forward is sometimes to look back. It can be uncomfortable at times, but what it can do is it can discourage some wrong things and encourage some good and right things. And this is how Moses begins the book of Deuteronomy. He, he prepares Israel that is on the edge of the promised land as we pick up their story here in Deuteronomy. They're on the edge of the promised land and he prepares them to move forward into the promised land first by looking back. And, and he does that in, in hopes of encouraging God's people to move forward in the right kind of way. Now Deuteronomy, in, in the Greek, there's this Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and they named this book what we have today, Deuteronomy. It's, it's two words kind of put together, Deuteronomion, which means second law. But the problem with that is that it's, it's not a second law. And really, it, it, it's not even quite a second giving of the law. You might have heard that as well, that Deuteronomy is not, not the second law, but it's the second giving of the law. But I think more accurately, as one author says, that Deuteronomy is a renewal and recapitulation of the law given at Sinai in preached form. A renewal and recapitulation of the law that was already given at Sinai, you see that in the book of Exodus, and it's in preached form. So Deuteronomy is the law of God explained and applied, or you could hear preach, it's preached by Moses to a new generation, to a particular situation, to a specific uh, generation of Israelites. So he preaches this to them. As they sit on the edge of the promised land, Moses begins this sermon, which is Deuteronomy. It's a, a sermon, and, and he may have even preached this sermon at one time. So we have all these chapters, 34 chapters of Deuteronomy. Moses might have given them to him at one time. We don't have to do that this morning. We're just doing three. So what a blessing from the Lord, right? But Moses may have done it at one time as he was carried along by the Spirit, gives this sermon in Deuteronomy to prepare them to move forward. And here's how he begins. Chapter 1, verse 1, these are the words of Moses, spoke to all of Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. 
And in the 40th year of the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people. So these are going to be Moses' words to the people of Israel, according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them, after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and Adrei. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law saying. So there it is. This is a sermon that Moses is going to be preaching. And before he moves them forward, he's going to first, in this sermon, recap where they've been. Look backward. And first he begins by recapping, and and I have this split in kind of two different time periods. He's going to recap for us the the time from the, the wilderness wanderings, uh, or from Sinai and to the wilderness wanderings. When they were in Sinai, they received the law. This is after the Exodus. And all the way through that 40 years of wilderness wanderings, that's one time period. And then he's going to move them from the wilderness all the way up to the edge of the promised land. So he's going to begin in those two time periods and look back at those and recap them for us. So he begins from, from where they were at Sinai to their presence in the edge of the promised land. Listen to what he says in verse 6. The Lord our God said to us, in Horeb. So when you think about Horeb, this is an area uh, that Sinai was found in. That would have been where they received the, the Ten Commandments originally, the law of God. So here's the setting here. The Lord God said to us in Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and all their neighbors in the Arabah and the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negeb and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And see, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them and to their offspring after them. So Moses is first. He's recalling right after the Exodus in Horeb, the area where Sinai was. And and as he recalls that, you can just think about all that has led up into that point, all that has led up to that moment where they're, they're there at, at Horeb, they're receiving this word that says, okay, now move forward, there's a land I've prepared for you, I want you to go in and take possession of it. Before all that has happened, there's a lot that has happened in the biblical storyline, right? right? Not only had the Exodus just happened, God had just delivered, redeemed Israel from Egypt by his mighty hand and outstretched arms. He'd perform these mighty signs and wonders, not just for Israel to see, not just for Egypt to see, but so that the whole world would have on display before them the greatness of Israel's God. And he delivers them out, brings them through the Red Sea where they walk across this place on dry ground and their enemies are covered over with water. They get released on the other side of there free. Not only is he referencing even thinking about we've just come out of this exodus, but this could go all the way back to Abraham. You remember in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, God calls to Abraham. Abraham was worshiping idols, married to a woman who was barren, and he had no children. And God calls him and says to him, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and the nations are going to be blessed through you and through your offspring. I'm going to give you a specific land. And so what God has done is that he takes Abraham with no offspring and he brings them all the way to this point where here we have the offspring of Abraham, a multitude of people poised to go into the land that God had promised Abraham long ago. So here we have Moses kind of just recalling this very, very quickly. And the biblical storyline has progressed greatly by God's hand. But these first few verses, they really set the tone for all of Deuteronomy. Because here they were, right after the Exodus, in this area known as Horeb. They'd experienced the victory that God had given them. 
victory over their enemies, freedom from slavery. They're, they're now under the, the leadership of God as he leads them forward as a pillar of fire and cloud. They're, they're under, they've heard the law of God and they're trying to live under it as he's leading them forward. And from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, which would have been, that would have been the doorstep, like the entrance to the promised land. What does it say in these first few verses? It's an 11-day journey. Chapter 1, verse 3, it's 11-day or chapter 1, verse 8, it should have been 11-day. Chapter 1, verse 3 says that they're in the 40th year. Now, what's going on here? What should have been a short 11-day journey, Moses now recalls and looks back and says, it's been 40 years. 40 years. 40 years since that chapter 1, verse 8, when God said, go in and take possession of the land. I'm, I'm giving it to you. It's been 40 years. What had happened to have diverted Israel from entering the promised land. That's what Moses is going to recall. I'm going to skip forward to verse 19 of chapter 1. We set out from Horeb, and we went through all the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. Okay, this would have been the doorstep, again, of the promised land, right at the edge of the promised land. And I said to you, you've come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us, See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, well, let us send some men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again on the way, of the way by which we must go, which way must go up and the cities in which we shall come. And the thing seemed good to me. And I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and they went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eskol. And spied it out, and they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Now think about what they're saying. That the Lord hated them after he's delivered them from slavery in Egypt and brought them to a land that they all identify as good. And they're saying that the Lord has hated us. They're fearful and afraid and it spread like wildfire amongst them. And in the face of this fear, Moses tries to bring some sanity and reason to them. Listen to what he says in verse 29. Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. He's saying, remember, as we think about going to land, remember that the Lord is going before you. He fights for you. He's carried you. Look at all that he's already delivered you from. Remember all these things. Now Moses, when he talks to them and pleads with them here, he doesn't diminish anything about the problems in the land. He doesn't say they're not actually that tall. I've spied them out too, and they're not as big as you think. Or that their cities are, are really not as fortified as well as you'd, you'd think. Their strategy, militarily speaking, is, is actually not that good. 
that their walls are just a facade. So don't worry about it. They'll crumble no problem. He doesn't do any of that. He exalts God. And he looks at what he has done. And he says, he's going in front of us. He's the one who fights for us. Not only has he shown us what he can, is capable of, he's shown us that he's more than capable of all that could be in front of us. But also notice this, he's near. He's, he's carrying us. He, Moses says, he's carried you as a man carries his son. In other words, he's, he's near to us. He's caring. He's like a father and a son. He's sustaining us. In other words, everything he points to is saying, this God is trustworthy. In 1992, during the Olympic Games in Barcelona, there was this runner from uh, Britain who was named Derek Redmond. And, and he's going to run the 400. I think it was the 400 that he ran. And, and as he starts to run, he gets off to a good start. And not long into the race, he hears a snap or a pop, and, and he's, he tears his hamstring. And he immediately kind of falls down and kind of quickly gets up and starts trying to limp because he wants to finish the race. And you've probably all seen this scene now. I have a picture of it as well. But here's what happens is that his dad, who is also kind of a coach and trainer for him, runs out onto the track. And do you remember what he does with his son? He wraps the son's arm around him, and he wraps his arm around the son, and he walks with him all the way to the finish line. Dad comes to help. And actually, if you watch the video, you can find it all over the place. Officials keep coming out to him and seem like they're trying to stop him from doing what he's doing. And he keeps like pushing, like, get out of here. Um, there, he said there were a few expletives that he said during that time, but you can just see him like in the video, just like pushing him away, shooing him off. And what a picture of, of God and Israel here. That Israel, from its conception, right? Jacob is this one, the father of Israel. Like he's the one who limps. God put his hip out of socket and he can't walk right anymore. So Israel is kind of this nation that limps. But that's okay because their God is the one who comes and he puts his arm around them and he grabs their arm and he puts it around his neck and he carries them along exactly where he wants them to go. God holds them up. He sustains them. He carefully powers them in the direction that he wants them to go. And, and if this, this is the God that's for them, the God who brought them out of Egypt, the God of the Exodus, if he's the one who's carrying them, who's fighting for them, who goes before them, then they can take on anything. Think about how they beat Egypt. How did they beat them? They did it with nothing. Nothing. They were slaves. They have nothing. But God was with them. And he was overpowering. That was more than enough for puny slaves in Egypt, named Israel, to be released. And actually to be released with the plunder of Egypt along with it. Because their God is the one who carries them, who fights for them. Only God is what they had, and that was more than enough. So if this God is the God who says, that land over there, I'm giving it to you, it's yours, then he can do it. I mean, what can he not give? If that's your God, they ought to be fired up when he says, go take this land. They ought to be like, it's good land. And we know this God. Look what he just did. Are you kidding me? Like, we just came through on dry ground, and then they, they didn't get through on dry ground. Like, we defeated them, and we, we plundered them too. Like, I don't know how, oh my goodness. Like, and he's giving us that land. Let's go. They should be fired up. They should be chest bumping, giving high fives as they get ready to enter into the promised land. But their response is much different, isn't it? 
Look in verse 32. Yet, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. Such a simple statement. He says, go take possession of it. Moses is pleading with them, and they don't believe. And the consequence for their unbelief was that there's an entire generation that now is no longer going to be allowed into the promised land. That they're then going to take that, what was going to be an 11-day journey, is now going to turn into 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And to this consequence that God hands down to them, their response might be even worse than their first response of not believing. Look at verse 41. God tells them the consequences the penalty, the judgment for their rebellion. And and here's what they do in verse 41. We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to them, say to them, don't go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before enemies. So I spoke to you and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up to the hill country. And the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. Here the people have the appearance of repentance. We've sinned against God. But notice in their stated repentance, their self-reliance, their stated independence of God. Repentance isn't a pulling of oneself up by one's bootstraps. It's saying we've sinned, now let's go do this. It's a falling holy on God. Repentance isn't presumptuous as they are. They said we think it's easy to go into the hill country. Repentance wouldn't do that. It's not presumptuous. Repentance also doesn't refuse to listen to God. In the middle of this, Moses, by the word of God, tells them, don't go up. God says, don't go up. Repentance would listen and heed the word of God. They reject it and rebel against it. Repentance is is not just a a turning away from something. It's a turning to something. And and if you're going to turn away from your sin of rebellion, then you're going to turn to, if in the right direction, you're going to turn to God, which means you're going to listen to his word, hear his word, and do what he says. Even if it's not what you want, you're going to turn in reliance upon him. But here they are. They're so rebellious and hard-hearted that they not only refuse to go into the promised land when God tells them to, when God promises it to them, but their callousness toward God is really shown when Moses says, actually, this time, don't go in. He warns them, God is not with you, and they still go. One author summarizes the section this way. This whole section is a litany of disaster, punctuated by the sad refrain of the people's attitude and actions. And the reality is that this isn't just a section of Scripture for the people that Moses is preaching to. This is a generation of people. To Moses' audience, this is no distant tale. It's their family, their parents, their grandparents, their aunts, their uncles, their cousins, the the people they're related to and live life with. That's who Moses is talking about. And that generation, instead of enjoying the, the goodness of the promised land, now they're sent to journey in the wilderness. This is where they go in chapter 2, verse 1. So now Moses has told us, all right, here's what happened from Sinai 
up to the doorstep of the promised land, and then they were kind of sent back, and now they're in the wilderness wandering. So he, he sums up that time frame. There's one. Moses doesn't linger or comment more, which is actually kind of interesting because of all that Moses experienced in that 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And he could have wrote books and books about that time. But he moves on to the second time frame, from, from the wilderness where they were sent to where they are as he preaches this sermon at the, again, the edge of the promised land. Look in chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord said to me, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. All right, this is the second time God has kind of said this, right? This is a new people, in a sense, new generation. You've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You're, you're going to go through this country. So it, it, let's take a look at just the map. I think this might be helpful for kind of get our bearings where they are. It's not real big, but hopefully you can see what's going on. All right. Down in the lower left corner, that's the wilderness. That's where they've been kind of wandering around somewhere in there for 40-ish years. Sinai is down there, so they were coming up there. And you can see uh, Kadesh Barnea is up there. You can see some of these nations that they're getting ready to go through. And they're getting ready to go through Edom and Moab and Ammon. And here's God is going to send them up through kind of the back way all the way around. And that you can see the arrow, hopefully the line pointing in the arrow as where they're going to enter into the promised land. So first he says you're going to go up through Edom. Edom would have been the descendants of Esau. And he says of Edom, chapter 2, this is first part of chapter 2, don't touch them. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, don't contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given, to Mount, I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Which is interesting, right? God, this is the one that the scripture says, Esau, I hated. Jacob is the one I loved, and Esau, I hated. And yet, God is so kind. Here, He gives them a land. It says that God gave them possession there. The next nation is Moab. These would have been descendants of Lot, so kind of some distant cousins. And here's what He says to them about them: Don't touch them. Chapter two, verse nine. The Lord said to me, "Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for possession, because I have given R to the people of Lot for possession." God says, I gave that to them as their possession. And we find out, if you read on in chapter 2, that God actually gave them that part of the land as their possession. And to get it, they had to dispossess giants in the land. So God gave them that land even over giants. Then they're going to go up through that third nation, Ammon. And Ammon gets the same treatment. Don't touch them. And they too, as you read through the story of Ammon, the rest of chapter 2, they too had been given the land and dispossessed those who had lived there before, who were again giants. So now, think about this. Israel, as they're traveling, they, they are now have walked through three different nations, two of whom have given, been given land, Moab and Ammon, that had giants in it formerly. Which is the same fear that they had when they were getting in, into the promised land. There's giants in there. Well, we can't go in there. And now they're walking through two different nations. Not nations that God is carrying. Not in the same way he's carrying Israel. And God gave them that land as they dispossessed it from giants. What does that say to Israel who refused to enter the promised land for fear? Surely they would have seen, like God surely would have given that to us as he said. He could clearly do this. That they would have been in the promised land. They could have avoided the wilderness wanderings. God could have given them the victory. But they were afraid. They didn't take that fear to God. 
they let it spread and grow. They didn't direct their fear to God. They didn't take it to God. And their fear did what it often does. One author said that fear is a notorious exaggerator and a false prophet of doom. Your fears reveal who you or what you trust. And if you listen to them enough, they exaggerate and are this false prophet of doom. So fear is one of those things, it's not to be listened to without examination, without putting it under the microscope saying, what are you actually saying and where do you come from? What do you show about what I trust in and believe in? And so what we should do for fears, we should take it directly to God. We can direct all of our fear to God and, and say, as they should have said, they should have been able to put together some sort of Psalm 23-ish prayer. As they look at the promised land and they see giants and tall towers and walls and military, they could have said, like, seems like you're telling us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Help us to remember that you're the one who's actually with us, carrying us, that goes before us, that your rod and your staff are with us. But they don't do that. They could have heard the word of the Lord in the midst of all this fear. Fear became so loud that they, they didn't hear the often repeated command, don't be afraid. Couldn't hear it. Fear was too loud. It was exaggerating. It was a false prophet of doom. And I got to ask, are we any different? Do we not have the tendency to just let our fears run unexamined and let them run loud? Let them exaggerate. Don't we often let fear be a false prophet of doom without directing it to the Lord, without taking it to the Lord that we might hear from Him in the midst of our fear? Israel, they, they walked through these nations that succeeded where they failed, which would have been to their shame, except for this, that the story isn't over. That now they're still on their way. That yes, they're going through some nations and it would have been stark reminders of the ways that they failed as these other nations had this land that the giants used to possess. But the story isn't over. They're on their way now. God hadn't made an end of them. He's leading them forward. He still has given them the promised land. By God's grace, Israel has this opportunity, this chance to make their obedience and their trust and their following of God more notorious than their failure and their sin, and rebellion, and hard-heartedness. Now, I'm not sure what your sin, and your rebellion, and your hard-heartedness is this morning. I'm not sure what you would point to and say, this is the most notorious sin, the, the most heinous sin that I have ever committed. I don't know what that is for you this morning, but if you're here, what I can also affirm to you is that there's opportunity to be known for something else. Here you are, listening to the merciful and gracious words of God. There's this opportunity extended to you through the love of God to be made known for something else. To make your repentance, your trust, and your obedience more notorious from now on than your failure and your sin and your rebellion. And that's what Israel has. God still graciously moves them onward. The promised land is still their goal. And he's still leading them forward. Perhaps it's just the motivation that they needed. And look at verse 24 and 25. As they get through all these nations, here's what God says. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. And behold, I have given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite king, 
of Heshbon and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish before you. Remember this, as God says this through Moses, that this is a, a new generation. The, the men of war from before that were wandering on the wilderness have all passed away. This is a new men of war, a new army who didn't see and experience the exodus in quite the same way as the prior generation. They had mostly known the wilderness, 40 years of it. But God delivers them uh, and he promises them. He gives them this word of victory in Sion. And here's what happens. Verse 32 of chapter 2. Then Sihon came out against us and all his people to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities and that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors, only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city, listen to this, too high for us, because the Lord our God gave all into our hands. Moses is very, very clear as he, as he kind of interprets what has happened to make sure they know it was God who gave it all into your hands. In other words, every step of their journey from Edom to Moab to Ammon, as they're looking at things, thinking about what's there, Moses points some things out. Every step of their journey, what's being pointed out is the trustworthiness of their God. That the nations that they either passed through or defeated are showing that God is the one who always keeps his word. Every place they step on their foot, God is showing his greatness. We see the same in chapter 3 with the defeat of King Og. It says, then we turned and we went up the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came, up, came out against us, he and all his people, to the battle at Edre. But the Lord said to me, do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and in his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. In other words, they didn't just get lucky once. They didn't just outmaneuver a king and something unique happened and like they get us enjoy the victory. God gave them the victory and God gave a decisive victory and he promises to do the same with Og and he does deliver the same with Og. Now this particular victory would have carried a bit more importance because the way is now clear for the promised land. They have now gone through everything they need to go through in order to enter the promised land at this point. Once they have defeated Og, they're there. They're on the doorstep. They only have to just go over into the promised land. In chapter 3, verse 11, it kind of summarizes a little bit what they did when they defeated Og of Bashan. And what we hear is that Og, king of Bashan, not a small fry, big guy, right? Giant. They probably had giant people. So again, here's a victory for them just before the end of the promised land that would have been particularly important because now They've not only dispossessed people in their way, but even giants in their way. Surely this helps bring home the message that Israel needed to hear before they entered the promised land, that God, if he's with you, what can be against you? Even if Og is this humongous king with a great kingdom and a great army, we just destroyed him. I gave you a decisive victory over him. And the repeated victories, they, they nail down further and further that listening to God 
and, and letting him lead you and doing what he says, it, you do that, it leads to victory. It's blessing and life there. Yeah, you walk with a limp, but I'm the one who's put my arm around you and I am carrying you all the way to the finish line. And so we, Moses, as he looks back, he recaps these two time periods. He looks back and further prepares them to enter into the promised land. And he recalls, all right, we've got Sinai into the wilderness and the wilderness. And now here we are up to the current moment as he's giving this sermon. And I think that this looking back of these two time frames shows two obvious truths that lead to two encouragements. Maybe Deutero has kind of gotten in my blood a little bit, so we have two time periods, two obvious truths, and two encouragements, all right? Two by two by two. The first obvious truth, as Moses has looked back and recapped, is that Israel is sinful. It's so obvious and it's everywhere. Moses is this great leader, but what does he do in chapter 1, verse 12? He appoints other leaders to help him out. Why? He describes it this way. You guys are a weight, a burden, and he talks about their strife. In other words, you guys are no picnic. Why? There's sin in the camp. They're sinners. Israel is sinful, and this is why they're in the wilderness. If you want to look at their heart and their sinful heart, take a look at their wilderness wanderings. Full of all kinds. I mean, man, it's full of interesting stories. Not many of them are... are things to look at in terms of like, this is how we should walk in faith. Most of them are the opposite. Israel is rebellious. They say of the promised land that they spied out. They say in chapter 1, verse 25, it's a good place. And then in verse 26 and 27, yet they would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and murmured in their tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Hated us by delivering us from slavery giving us a good land. They rebelled. And God says, verse 32, said that you did not believe. And what does he call them in verse 35? Not one of these men of this evil generation. Wicked, evil. If you summarize the verbs, look at the verbs of verse 26 through 46 of chapter 1. Rebelled, murmured, uh, they made our hearts melt. In other words, we were afraid. They saw that God was carrying them, but they didn't believe. And then they had this kind of feigned repentance and thought it was easy to go up into the hill country, but they would not listen, rebelled. They returned, they wept, they remained. I mean, again, this is a, a period that's just a disaster. I mean, what did the author say? That this whole section is a litany of disaster punctuated by a sad refrain of the people's attitudes and actions. I mean, it's everywhere. An 11-day journey turned into 40 years because of their rebellion, because of their sin. Now, perhaps nowhere is Israel's sinfulness and God's displeasure more shockingly seen than in chapter 3. Verse 23, this is Moses. He pleads with the Lord, saying, O Lord, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such things and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Man, Moses is a great leader. He's a great man. God chose him 
to lead Israel out of Egypt, to lead them into the promised land. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says of Moses that he is very meek, more than all the people on the earth. In Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, there's this kind of summary of, 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 of Moses' life that's kind of put together by the publisher of Deuteronomy. And listen to what he says. There has not arisen a prophet since in all in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders. And the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh, and to all his servants, into all his land. There's none like him. And here he pleads with God. Moses, you look through his story. He's a good prayer. He intercedes well for the people of God. And he is denied. Why? Verse 26, chapter 3. What does it say? Moses says, because of you. That's interesting. Uh, you heard that Moses struck the rock, and that's why he didn't enter. So Moses is a sinner, and so that was his fault. Moses here says, it's because of you. Because of you. He has some solidarity as the leader of Israel with the people of Israel. And as Moses prays here, he knows that he is a great prayer. He intercedes for Israel. And one of the reasons he's a great prayer and interceder is because he fully identifies with the people of Israel. So yeah, he, he does sin on his own, but his ban from the promised land also has to do with his association with that sinful people. So yes, he sinned, and yes, it was because of them. But here's what we see is that from top to bottom, from great Moses all the way down to average Joe Israel, Israel is sinful. They're undeserving of the promised land. They're undeserving of God's presence going before them and giving them. They're sinful. And as the people prepare for the promised land, they look back and what's obvious? Their sin is ugly and it's everywhere. Fortunately, that's not all that's obvious about looking back. The second thing is that Israel is sinful, yes, but God is great. Notice God's faithfulness. He delivered and redeemed them from Egypt, as he promised he would, with his mighty hand and outstretched arm. He, he brings them out with a purpose. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I'm going to give you this land to take possession of it. In chapter 1, verse 10, the Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of the heaven. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Who did God promise that to? He said to Abraham, I'm going to make your offspring numerous. You're not even going to be able to count them like you can't count the stars. And he brings them to a land that he promised to Abraham that he said was going to be good. He does all that he says. He told this generation that rebelled against him, none of you are going to enter the promised land except for Caleb and Joshua. They're the only exceptions. And what does he do in this story? He's faithful to that word. All of that generation dies off except for Caleb and Joshua. They were denied. Everyone else was denied entrance into promised land. In other words, God, again, faithful to his word. He says, Sihon, I'm giving him into your hand. Og, I'm giving him into your hand. What does he do? He delivers them into their hands. He's faithful to his word. It's obvious. But so is his greatness seen in his sovereignty. God brought them out of Egypt. He is the one who delivered them by his greatness. And he brought them to this point. He carried them. He led them. When they rebelled, Here's what happened. God sustained them in the wilderness. Chapter 2, verse 7. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, what has God been doing? The Lord 
your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. The shoes on their feet didn't wear out. Every day, minus the Sabbath, he delivered manna from heaven for them. He provided for them water multiple times. What is happening? They have a sovereign God who is caring for them and sustaining them. He's a great God. He judged this rebellious uh, generation. Chapter 2, verse 15, he says, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they'd perished, and they did. He's sovereign over that. Moses clearly, as he talks through their journey through the nations, he views not only the nations and their possession of the land and what has happened there and all of history through the lens of God's sovereignty. You see, Edom and Moab and Ammon were given the land by the hand of God. They dispossessed people in the land, and it's described. Look at chapter 2, verse 22. As he did for the people of Esau who live in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. God is doing this. It's God, chapter 2, verse 25, who puts the dread of Israel on these other nations. It's God, chapter 2, verse 30, who hardens Sihon. It's God who gives Sihon over to them. It's God who routes Og and delivers him over them. Chapter 3, verse 3, the Lord our God gave into our hand Og. Why, all over these three chapters, you see the sovereignty of this great God. He's faithful to his word. He's working in and through history. Nothing is absence of, absent of his sovereignty, his care, his provision, his sustaining, his judgment, his presence is everywhere. And so as the people prepare for the promised land, they look back and they see this obvious truth. Our God is great. Now, years ago in Britain, researchers went door to door and they asked, do you believe in a God who intervenes in history, who changes the course of affairs, who performs miracles, etc.? Stuff like that. And a typical response that they got back was this. No, I don't believe in that God. I just believe in the ordinary God. There's no ordinary God in the Scripture. But I wonder, is our God ordinary? Is the God that you worship an ordinary God? Not the one who can intervene in history, change the course of affairs, or perform miracles. Just the ordinary God. Is that our God? Because that's not the God of the Scriptures. He is not an ordinary God. He is a great God who is sovereign in all things, in all history, in all peoples, over all nations. He is faithful. He is sovereign. We could sum that up by saying that God is great. And though we have these obvious truths that Israel is sinful and God is great, like as bad as their sinfulness is, they have all they need to move forward. Because God is great. So how do they move forward? This is the two encouragements, I think, from this passage. The first one is that if God is great, don't fear or be afraid. It's said over and over again in chapter 1, verse 21. In chapter 1, verse 29. In chapter 3, verse 2. In chapter 3, verse 22. I'll read that one. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. They've seen the God of Exodus, the God who delivers over Sihon and Og and defeats those kingdoms in front of them. They have those examples and encouragements to not be afraid as you move forward. But church, we have so much more. Do you fear man? God says, don't. They have breath in their lungs. I don't. 
I'm the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Are you scared for your health? God has numbered every hair on your head. He cares for you deeply. Are you scared of death? Our God went through it and came out on the other side. Are you scared of the future? Our God is the Alpha and the Omega. He's in the future already. One author questions, when a heart is being filled with the greatness of God, there is less room for this question. What are people going to think of me? And we could stop there and just say, yeah, what are people going to think of me? Or what difference does it make if I die? Or the future seems scary, but what difference does it make? You could fill in the blank there. I'm scared of death. What is death going to do to me? What's the future going to do to me? But what does he say? If our heart is filled with the greatness of God, there's less room for that. If we belong to God, there is no need to fear. Now, I do say if. If you don't belong to God, there is need to fear. Because God is the one who's holding judgment over you. And we would say, turn from that judgment to the living God and trust in Him. And when you belong to Him, there is no need to fear other men, the future, death. There's no need to fear because what we can do then is we take our fear to God and we can examine it in light of Him. You, you see this in the scripture, right? The psalmists, they, they take their fear to God and they examine it in light of Him. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In chapter 27 of, of the Psalms, right, he's surrounded by an army. Scary. The Lord's the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid of? Psalm 23. You're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. That's not a pleasant place. But I will fear not. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. John 16, 33. This world is full of trouble. Yes, Jesus acknowledges it. He says, yeah, in this world you will have trouble. But why do we take heart? Because Jesus, our Lord, has overcome the world. Or we could go to Romans 8 and we could spend forever there, right? Well, I mean, it, it addresses all of our fears. It says, Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who could be against us? That's 8.32, sorry. One verse lower. But then it goes on to say, man, if he did not spare his own son, but graciously gave us up for him all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? And then he goes on to say, who could bring a charge against God's elect? Or what could separate us from the love of God? And the answer over and over again is like, God's enough for you. Nothing could separate you from his love. Even death... He's there. He's already come out on the other side for you. Our God is so great that we do not have to fear. But our hearts need to be filled with that greatness. We have to see Him, behold Him, know Him for who He is, that He's this faithful and sovereign God. We have to know His greatness and let our hearts be filled with it. So the first thing, the encouragement is, don't be afraid. The second thing, if, if God is great and the people, all people, Israel's us, if they're all sinful, we're not to be afraid. Here's what we are to do. We are to fear, but we're to fear God. God's holiness, God's power, his sovereignty was on display for all of Israel and now written in the pages of Deuteronomy for us to see. It was on display in his salvation of his people and judgment on the nations. It was a display on his judgment on his own people for their rebellion, and his salvation of his people. The message is clear. This is not a God to be trifled with. This is, this is not a God to be questioned. 
This is not a God to be ignored. This is not a God to rebel against. This is a God to be feared. I mean, hear rightly what that means. So the fear of God means that we're in awe of God. We revere God. We, we tremble before Him. But rightly, in awe and reverence and trembling before God, is also have intimacy with God, closeness to God. Yes, He clears out the nations and judges them, but He also carries closely like a father to a son. He saves His own. This is the kind of God that we have. The right fear of God looks like Him wrapping His arm around us and carrying us as we limp along, as we stand in awe and reverence as He does it all the time. We're close to Him and in reverence of Him. The fear of God looks like trust, looks like obedience. And what does he do over and over again in the pages of Scripture and in the first three chapters of Deuteronomy? He shows himself to be trustworthy. How much more than Israel has he shown us to be trustworthy? For them, he dispossessed some of the nations in front of them. He gave them victories. For us, he went to the cross. He died. He came out the other side and said that you can find life and have resurrection in me. If, if our God would, would do that for us, then how could we not fear him and trust him and do whatever he says that he wants us to do? So here we are with Israel. They're on the edge of the promised land. They're looking back and now they're ready to move forward. How will you move forward? How are you thinking about life? This was written for our instruction that we might heed the encouragements, that we might have hope. And to that end, let's pray together. God, once again, I would rather look back at these ancient peoples and roll my eyes at them and think about how wicked they are and make myself feel better about my spiritual uh, advances over theirs. But we look at these people getting ready to enter into the promised land and what they've been doing for the last 40 years, and we again see ourselves we see that we are sinful and we see that in our minds, most of the time, if we're really honest, we think that people are really big and powerful and that you are very small. And we think that our problems, whatever they may be, the difficult things in our lives, they are massive and they cause fear and trembling and worry and anxiety. And you are a tiny God who cannot do anything about them. We know that's ridiculous. We know that's not who you are, but we have our minds in reverse, God. So will you please through, just like these people going to your word again and again and again every day, will you remind us that you are big and people are small. You love them, but they're no match for you, God. And we praise you today. We thank you so much for standing up to the giants that we really, truly could not overcome. Jesus, you looked death in the eye 
and you destroyed it for us. You looked our sin in the eye and took it to the ground and broke its power over us, and you have set us free. And we know that we have nothing to fear in the future, that we'll stand before you clean and declared righteous because of what you've done for us. And we even have nothing to fear in this world, even though people may slay us for your namesake you're going to make everything right. So please forgive us for not trusting you and help us to gaze at your glory and your power and your goodness. Thank you for not laying us waste because of our sin and our rebellion, but scooping us up and carrying us along. And you still do that today. You've given us your spirit and you're patient with us. And day by day, you're changing us from one degree of glory into the next to make us look more and more like you. Jesus, if there's anyone here who does not know you, will you draw them to yourself because of your awesome love and power and goodness? There is nothing that they've done that will push you or keep you away from them. Your sin is what compels you to come to us. So God, please restore us, refresh us, and give us the hope that you are so worthy of. You are worthy of our praise and our trust. Redirect our hearts and minds. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.